This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 26, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Proposed rules at the IRS could change the way groups advocate in the public sphere, and the rules are vague enough that many groups don't know what will trigger violations of law. Alan Dickerson is legal director for the Center for Competitive Politics. We spoke today. The IRS has waded further, it seems, into uh, regulating certain kinds of political speech, but uh, with respect to 501c4s. And just for the education of the audience, there's a pretty big difference between a 501c3 nonprofit and a 501c4 organization. What is that difference? Well, there's a few differences. Uh, the, the main one, probably the one that, that most people have in mind when they're talking about this, is that contributions, when you think of contributing to a church or a charity or something like that and taking a tax deduction on your, on your 990, that's a 501c3. That's an organization that's not in any way affected by this potential rulemaking. What we're talking about here are 501c4 organizations, which are so-called social welfare groups. And what they do is they exist to, to advocate, to, to talk about social issues, about public policy. Uh, your, your sort of classic examples would be people like the Sierra Club who you know, have an issue, or the NRA, and they advocate for it and on it. And uh, if you give money to the NRA or to the Sierra Club, you do not get a tax deduction. So, uh, but it makes sense why groups would want to associate uh, in uh, the, under that organizational form, which is C4 refers to the IRS code that, that governs this sort of thing. So uh, it, it makes sense people want to buy insurance, they want to have bank accounts to account for various things. and then Someone the, slips in the lobby. They don't want the president to you know, be able to go bankrupt. It's a sort of standard corporate form of sure, damages. Sure, exactly. So um, what has the IRS done? What is the rule that they've, they've altered or spelled out? Well, the rule is, is very long and thankfully not final yet. Uh, the, the comment period on the rule actually closes this Thursday, the 27th. What the, what the rule does is – it, 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 in my view, it, it, it changes the sort of balance under how we talk about speech under the First Amendment. And that's going to be a, a little bit of a long story, but if you'll bear with me. Uh, the, 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 the premise, of course, under the First Amendment is that you know, speech can't be regulated. Um, and that's especially true for speech about public policy, about social issues, about things of that nature, because that's how we end up having a responsive government. Uh, but there's, there's been sort of a carve out over the last 40 or so years where speech which tells you who to vote for can be regulated in ways that other speech can't. And what the IRS here has done is to say – is to sort of to flip that presumption and say that anything that, that might involve a candidate, that might involve how people vote, that may involve not, not even elections, but you know, who gets appointed to courts, who um, – you know, whether you can talk about pieces of legislation like McCain-Feingold or that you know, are named after candidates. Um, the, the presumption shifts that that is now an attempt to get people to vote one way or another, which is the opposite of, of well, the constitutional tradition and certainly the law. Part of this goes back to defining in law what C4s are allowed to do. That's exactly right. And how much they may devote to their so-called social welfare uh, advocacy. and. And that goes back to another major distinction between the C3s we were talking about earlier, you know, the charities where you get the tax deduction and the, the C4s. I mean, C3s can't do any political activity. They can't even indirectly contribute or participate in, in campaigns. And the reason is that, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense for the federal treasury to be subsidizing partisan work, or at least that's the theory. Uh, C4s can, they can do nothing but lobbying if they want to. 
because again, they're they're supposed to be advocacy organizations. They're supposed to be out there talking about the Keystone pipelines and the and the gun control bills and you know the the federal tax code. Now, if if I understand the sort of nuts and bolts of the rule in a very short form, the IRS rules say it's fine to continue lobbying, but it's not fine to continue lobbying individual voters. Well, it, it, it's actually very difficult to tell because the rule is not well written. Okay. But the essentially what, what the rule does is it, it – there's always been this sort of understanding going back to the 50s that a C4 can do a certain amount of, of you know, political activity by which we mean you know, vote for or vote against this guy uh, up to roughly half of their budget. And that's been everyone's working assumption for a half century. What this rule would do is create a new category called candidate-related political activity, which and, – and the word related is doing a lot of work there. Um, it really is anything that's, that's even vaguely related in any way to a candidate, including merely mentioning a candidate, uh, which of course is very often an incumbent office holder, um, would now be considered the same thing as going out and telling them to vote for or against that person. And that's that, – that's – that's organizationally very difficult because now it's hard to tell where that line is in your budget and whether you're, you're staying under it as you're required to. But it's also difficult because you end up chilling a large amount of speech that may be relatively close to the line. So if you're an organization, I'm just going to throw some for instances at sure. you and you tell me if it's clear, unclear or, uh, or, or whatever with respect to the law. I run a C4. I have an event where I've invited people to come chat and I have a sitting office holder who's going to speak on an area of his particular legal expertise on that subject to educate my members on that subject. Is that candidate-related political activity? Under the rule, the answer seems to be yes. And in fact, it, it's, it's not even the example you gave. It's that if the, if the office holder happens to show up, it actually says in the, in the notice of proposed rulemaking, you know, that this person can be uh, an anticipated guest and that that would, that would still trigger candidate-related political activity. And you're getting at sort of the problem, right, is that, you know, it doesn't say that the people in, in your group have to be able to vote for this guy. He might be from the next state senate district over. We don't know. Um, it doesn't say that you know he. It, it's 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 not it's not tied to an election in the way that election law traditionally is. Um, and your example, I think, gets at another major point, which is how on earth do you value that? You know, in terms of figuring out your budget and whether you're under this this fifty percent, or at least we think it's fifty percent because the rule declined to tell what the percentage would be and said they'd do that later. But you know, if, if let's say it is still fifty percent, you know, how how on earth do you value? The you know that particular part of your budget, um, I don't think anyone has a good answer to that. How important are C fours in electoral politics and at public advocacy? Well, I think they're extremely important for public advocacy. Um, you know, your your a lot of your classic organizations like the NAACP or the Sierra Club or the NRA, as I've mentioned, are C fours. I mean, that's that is the model we're talking. We're talking about the heart of civil society here. Um, now, how important they are for electoral advocacy, I think, is a is a slightly more difficult question. And obviously, PACs and parties are are and candidates themselves are are far more central to uh, to actual electoral results. Uh, I would argue the media is probably also far more central to electoral results. And uh, I mean, that's that's another example. This rule does not have a media exemption. Now, uh, th and that's an important distinction. For a very long time, uh, we've thought of newspaper endorsements mm -hmm. of 
of candidates to be just a, a totally different animal from well, in federal election law they are a totally different animal. All right, but as far as the First Amendment goes, they're mm-hmm. they're they're clearly they're the same thing. There's no difference. No, I think that's correct. Yes. So um, let's 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 dig down here. Let me try to give you another detail. Mm-hmm. I, I have a C four. I have a Twitter feed where I talk about things on that Twitter feed. I have a blog where we talk about issues and try to help the public evaluate issues. I mention lawmakers who have legislation or have written legislation in the past on that Twitter feed, on that blog. Is that candidate-related uh, political activity? Well, it depends. Um, one, of, one of the things that, that the rule tries to do is to import uh, this sort of temporal window around elections where you know you, you have to – well, it's not terribly clear how you would figure this out, but you have to be actually advocating for election or defeat outside of, say, 60 days before the general election or 30 days before a primary election. But if your, if your tweet were to go out during those windows, 60 days before the primary, um, and it mentions a candidate for office in any context, no matter what you said – that's considered, yes, candidate-related political activity. And it's even worse because one of the things the rule says is that they are going to assume, they being the IRS, that anything that stays up on your website during that 60-day window, even if it was published, I mean, a year previously, gets transferred into, into candidate-related political activity. And we're, we're back to, to, again, that same problem. How on earth do you value that tweet? I mean, just an accounting nightmare. Okay, and the, the reason that valuation matters, it's not. It's because there is this percentage that we don't know yet mm-hmm. that you may not exceed in a candidate-related political activity. So, valuing it as a share of your budget, as a share of your overall advocacy, you're saying is totally not clear at all. It's not clear at all, and it's it's. Like many things in in this area, when you're talking about you know freedoms of speech and assembly, it's going to be that much harder for small organizations. What's going to, What's going to happen next on on this on this rule? Well, the comment pro, the comment period will close uh, tomorrow, and there are seventy thousand comments, I believe, as of the last reading. Uh, they tend to be fairly negative, uh, largely for the reasons that I pointed out that no one really understands them and that they seem very invasive. Um, at that point, the IRS will have a choice about whether or not to hold a public hearing or just adopt some version of this rule or some sort of uh, changed or amended version. And after that, uh, I, I expect there'll be some court action depending on what they come out with. Now, now it's typical for a regulatory agency to issue a – file a notice of proposed rulemaking, have that period expire, receive a lot of comments, rewrite the rule – and then put it back out for comment again. That that does happen. It's not required. So, uh, is it your? Do you have an expectation about what's going to happen? I do not have an expectation. I have a hope that the IRS will realize that they're they're treading into waters they don't well understand, and will either withdraw the rule or very or either link it to FEC regulation where there is some expertise, or otherwise significantly revise it. Now, is this partly driven by the fact that the president himself does have pretty wide latitude when it comes to authority with the IRS? I'd rather not attribute motives, but it is certainly a structural fact that usually elections are regulated by the Federal Election Commission, which Congress said will have exclusive jurisdiction over the civil enforcement of the election laws. And that commission is evenly divided between the two parties by design for fairly obvious reasons. Um, and the IRS does not have that safeguard. The IRS is controlled by appointees of the president. 
Alan Dickerson is legal director at the Center for Competitive Politics. Cato will host an event on these new IRS rules March 4th. You can learn more at Cato.org.